Welcome, beautiful people, to Camp Koji. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast you will ever need. Today, we're going to talk about the Mortal Kombat film trailer and Nintendo's latest Direct. But first, we're going to talk about Six Days in Fallujah. I talked about this on last week's episode, but right after that, Polygon had an interview with Peter Tante, who's the head of publisher of Victoria. And he had a couple of things to say about this game, but I'm going to start off with this quote. For us as a team, it was really about helping players understand the complexity of urban combat. It's about the experiences of that individual that is now there because of political decisions. And we do want to show how choices that are made by policymakers affect the choices that a Marine needs to make on the battlefield. Just as that Marine cannot second guess the choices by the policymakers, we're not trying to make a political commentary about whether or not the war itself was a good or bad idea now i brought this up last week which is when you're creating a game based on a real war you can't just absolve yourself of all political commentary you you just can't and the way that peter tempte is trying to kind of dissuade or you know spin away from um, the serious questions that should be answered, which is how will this war be depicted from the perspective of the United States Marine? Now, apparently the Marines that you control in this game, I don't know if they're using real names, but they're using, apparently they're using real likenesses from Marines that were interviewed, um, which, you know, once again, just adds to the reality factor of this, uh, this game Based upon a battle, as I brought up last year, where 800 uh, coins of Red Cross, an estimated 800 civilians lost their lives. And, you know, if you're making a game where you refuse to face or dig into the uh, reality from both sides, then you are making a political commentary, right? I mean... I think I I brought this up last week about how the United States, just like any country that goes to war, will forever deny that they were involved in any sort of war crimes, even if there's evidence that contradicts that information. And I think that if you create a piece of media, whether it's a film or it is a video game, where now the, you know, you don't show those true controversies of war or casualties of war that we know have been, um, have, you know, in the real world, there has been proof that these events happen, then you are making a political commentary because at that point, it's almost like um, borderline propaganda if you're not going into the realities of the war based upon the proof that we've seen. And, Peter Tempte was asked about the reported use of white phosphorus, which is something I brought up during last week's show. He said, quote, there are things that divide us and including those really divisive things, I think distracts people from the human stories that we can all identify with. I have two concerns with including phosphorus as a weapon. Number one is that it's not a part of the stories that these guys told us. So I don't have authentic factual basis on which to tell that that's most important. Number two is I don't want sensational types of things to distract from the parts of that experience. So if you are creating a piece of media that, um, you know, does not 
face the reality of either war crime or the denial of a war crime. And that is uh, in and of itself a political commentary that you are making with that piece of media that you are creating. And it bothers me what he says. Number one is that it's not a part of the stories that these guys told us. I mean, what do you expect? You expect to interview a U.S. Marine and he's going to tell you like, yeah, we're tossing, you know, white phosphorus grenades into, you know, homes we thought unoccupied or occupied by insurgents like snowballs. Like, of course, they're not going <laughs> to they're not going to talk to you about their use of, of uh, something like that or any controversial action that they took on the battlefield or that they witnessed. Of course, they're not going to talk about something like that. Are you, are you insane? Are you crazy? Now, what's weird is that he uh, did bring up about the fact that they did interview civilians and citizens um, from Fallujah. And apparently he claims that 10% of the story revolves around a father trying to lead his family to safety. Quote, this is an unarmed Iraqi civilian. We do not at any point ask the player to become an insurgent. To be clear about that, this is an Iraqi civilian who was trying to get his family out of the city during the battle. And, um, you know, once again, from reading everything about this game, uh, from seeing the way that this, uh, you know, Victoria company had Peter Tamte, the way that he is, uh, I wouldn't say deny, but it's sort of like putting up this shield and building these walls away from criticism when it comes to this. Come on, it's 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 a controversial game that you're creating. And I think one of the reasons why we look at it as controversial is because, you know, the Iraq war, it's, this isn't something that happened 40, 50 years ago. It's still very recent. And uh, the effects of that war are still felt even now. So, you know, for you to not, uh, you know, face those questions that are being asked of you, you know, um, I mean, do, do I think that this account from, uh, you know, being able to, I guess, control this unarmed Iraqi civilian, I'm guessing it's, you know, in the terms of a video game, it's like a, a stealth sequence you're trying to get out. Uh, I mean, do you believe, hearing everything I've said about this this person, that there are gonna there are going to be sequences of the game that show the uh you know buildings and the prevention of this iraqi civilian trying to get his family out do you think these obstacles are going to be created by united states marines or are they gonna purely be you know uh dealing with insurgents during those gaming moments and at some point you're going to see the u.s marine you know, become the savior to save this Iraqi civilian and get him away and his family away from harm and save them from insurgents at some sort of key moment and, and heat of the battle. Of course, this was going to happen, right? They're always going to depict the U.S. Marine as the savior um, when there are a lot of stories that show uh, different, especially when it comes to the actual circumstances of entering that war and, and that invasion. So, um, you know, the way that I look at these things is that, you know, Ubisoft at one point had talked about the division two and spoke about them not making a political commentary with the game. And it's a lot easier to accept that because division two is a fictional story, right? When it comes to what's happening with six days of Fallujah, this is very real. And it's, 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 it's real enough that they felt the need to, um, create this game from the perspective of Marines. So, and actually using their likeness in the game. 
So this, this sort of looks like one of those experiences where it's like, hey, if you want a first-person shooter where you're dealing with urban combat and just shooting a bunch of people, that's that's kind of, it, it sounds like that's what they want from the game. They're going to want you to think about uh, the Iraq war in, in any, you know, form or sense in, in terms of its impact on the real world. They just want you to look at it from the virtual world, but at the same time, they want to talk about the real life struggles of being in a, a, a Marine and having to make these choices on the ground. You know, it's, it's contradictory in and of itself. Um, I, I'll be very interested to see how they depict this game the first time they actually show it to us, whether that be a trailer or a set of images or something like that. I, I think there's been some images out there, but I don't think we've actually seen the gameplay or, or, or trailer footage or something like that. Um, moving on. We don't really have too much to talk about this week. It's really just about this Mortal Kombat film trailer. And then a bulk of the show is going to be dealing with Nintendo and the Nintendo Direct. So first off, that Mortal Kombat film trailer, we finally got to see what this, this movie looks like last week. It's supposed to be out in two months. So I remember having a feeling of concern. Like when they first announced this film... And announced that this is a first-time director. I remember looking at the uh, the cast that they had put together and immediately being interested because they put together a really, really strong cast and built around a lot of people that know what they're they're doing, especially actors like um, Louis Tan and, for the life of me, I can't remember his name, but the actor who is playing Sub Zero. So a lot of the cast's decisions just made a lot of sense to me, and it showed that they were going to really uh, ground themselves down to making this a, a film about combat, which I think was very, very important. And I think that's something that the first Mortal Kombat films sort of missed. And I think it's another thing that I think other films based on video games sort of tend to miss. You know, it, it usually falls under these two categories. It's either A, this sort of uh, fan service and sticking very, very close to the original material, or it's these video game companies that sort of give up a lot of creative control, and it's almost like they take these Hollywood studios are taking like the elevator pitch for the video game and they're turning it into the film. And that's how we get things like the Prince of Persia film, for example. I, I don't think anyone can watch a Prince of Persia film and think to themselves like it, it really reminded them of the video game. You know, it, it was one of those films that outside of the ability to rewind time and I think the use of the dagger you'd be hard-pressed to see many connections to the original source material when it came to that um, that film. And obviously, the fact that Jake Gyllenhaal was, you know, the leading actor is, is you know, another supporting uh, fact for that. So when I looked at the Mortal Kombat film trailer, number one, I was a little bit concerned because the, the film comes out in two months and we just hadn't seen a trailer. It's kind of a little bit, not normal, but you know, the director had talked about the fact that they're still working on it, obviously with COVID nineteen, and you know, I'm one hundred percent completely satisfied with what 
I saw, and I think it was pretty unanimous when it came to anyone who was a Mortal Kombat fan. When you saw that trailer, you were completely satisfied with what you saw. You you realize that the producers and directors um, for this film understood, they had a vision to understand exactly what they had to do, which was uh, you had to take a a video game which is you know very fantastical and ground it in a bit but create put it in this real world sense where you know these supernatural things can still be happening but they're very grounded and they feel very real and everything looks to make sense like nothing really feels out of place so the that opening shot of sub zero freezing that bullet uh it, it just doesn't feel very weird or, or out of place. I think they did a really good job of putting that mythology into the the real world. And it's very interesting that they're, you know, showing a bit of, you know, they're focusing on, on Scorpion and his backstory and, and, you know, who he was before he became the Scorpion that we actually know. So the, the number one thing that I took away from the film trail, number one, was the costumes were just amazing. You know, I, I couldn't get over, especially looking at the costume that they created for Scorpion. I, I, I just couldn't stop looking at it. It's it's just amazing the fact that they base it on uh, actual ancient Japanese samurai armor instead of kind of going for, you know, the cloth look that we were used to in the original Mortal Kombat of Scorpion and even some of the more more recent iterations of, of, of the game. It looks like they took a lot of inspiration from the latest games like Mortal Kombat 11 where um, even that game sort of has done a good job of uh, grounding those characters and, you know, not making them as, you know, super far-fetched. And especially they've done a lot of good work with the costume and the armor and things like that in the game. And I think that you could tell that they took a lot of that inspiration for the film. And it was cool to see, I think IGN had dropped like a 15 minute uh, video of the director talking us through the trailer and, and, and talking about, you know, how many iterations they had to go through to get uh, characters like Goro Rai and, and characters like, um, you know, Kung Lao and, 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 and his hat and things like that. So it, it just really showed a person that understood how important those elements are to people that grew up with the game and still interact with the game and still love those characters. I mean, you know, when you think of Mortal Kombat, you're talking about some of the most iconic characters in video game history. And you could tell that the, the, the director really, really understood that connection that fans had to it. And it really came across in the design of, of the characters themselves when it came to the way that they look in the film, very much opposed to the way that they looked in the original where, or in the original film. So that was the one thing that I took out of it. But the other thing that I thought about when I was looking at the film is, if you look at that trailer from the lens of a person that has never played the game, it just looks like a really dope action film. You know, it looks like a really, really fun film to check out. And I looked at this this trailer as depicting a film that was very, very close to the source material in terms of the fact that we know the source material is a fighting game. 
And it looks like this this film is very much about like, yeah, there'll be mythology. Yes, there will be some story in there. But at the end of the day, we know that you guys want to see some amazing fights. So when you look at that Scorpion and Sub-Zero fight and everyone was talking about that scene where Sub-Zero froze Scorpion's blood and stabbed him with it. Um, it, it just shows a film that's giving us, meaning the Mortal Kombat fans, exactly what we want to see from this film. Um, without too much exposition and you know too much unnecessary weight being put onto this film, we want to see these people fight. We want to see you know blood, action, gore, broken bones. We want to see those fatalities. So the fact that those things were infused into the film from the very very beginning, you know, are, are pretty exciting to see. You know, this comes out April sixteenth, so it's pretty much right around the corner. Um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine. I said, man, if if Theaters open in New York. I would probably think about watching this film in a theater as opposed to watching on HBO Max. But um, either way, it's, it's pretty cool that we have this option now given to us, especially for states where theaters aren't open. Once again, here in New York, we're one of those states. Um, and who knows exactly when um, those theaters will be able to, 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 to be open to the public. So... Um, you know, overall, I, I was very, very satisfied with what I saw. It looks really, really good. It looks fun. Like I said, it just looks like uh, the team behind this film just really gave the fans exactly what they wanted. And I think people who are not Mortal Kombat fans, I think they looked at that trailer as just something that it just looked like a really fun action film. Now, for our final story of the week, we're going to talk about Nintendo and the Nintendo Direct. Now, before last week, the last general Nintendo Direct was over 500 days ago on September 4th, 2019. So, obviously, there was lots of anticipation going into this. Millions of people watched it across various streams. I'm pretty sure Nintendo broke their personal record. Apparently, there was over 3 million views if you add up across all different sources. There was like 1.3 million on YouTube alone which is pretty amazing. Um, so obviously a lot of people were looking forward to this. I felt a little bit, uh, I'm in a weird position right now with Nintendo where I'm very happy with what they're doing as a company from a business standpoint. It's amazing to see just how strong Nintendo is right now. I think they're doing a great job of almost splitting up the way that they run their company right now, where you have their video game business and everything that's happening with Nintendo Switch and everything they've done with their mobile business. And then you almost have this separate business from Nintendo, which is their licensing opportunities. And you see that with the opening of Super Nintendo World and, you know, the upcoming Mario film and all these different collaborations that, that we've seen, like, you know, Lego Levi's and all this other stuff. So it almost seems like Nintendo is being run almost like a media and entertainment company and also as a video game company, which was inevitable for this for Nintendo to become. So from a business standpoint, I'm very happy and proud to see what Nintendo is, especially when we think about a company that was just absolutely struggling during the Nintendo Wii U and, you know, the Nintendo 3DS era. Uh, you know, those were both systems that, struggled the nintendo 3ds struggled out the gate until they finally kind of steered that ship in the right direction the nintendo wii u was 
I mean, for all, I mean, let's be honest, it was, it was a failure. It was a failure that the, the, the company recognized. And for them to complete this absolute turnaround in the middle of our industry going through one of its largest leaps that we've ever seen, you know, in terms of technology, in terms of SSD, and the fact that PC, Xbox Series X, and PlayStation 5, I wouldn't say they're on a level playing field, but the fact that we finally have these consoles that are able to reach up to 120 frames per second and all these bells and whistles that they have. You have this Nintendo Switch, which is still struggling with a lot of their uh, games. You know, <laughs> I'm going to talk about like in the show about Apex Legends, for example. So you have a, a, a system that, technical you know technically speaking can't hold a candle to these other three platforms and are still able to fly off the shelves at such a rapid rate and that's not even talking about their software so i find myself in a weird position with nintendo because i'm so happy with what they've done in a, as a business but then as a consumer i i just don't use my nintendo switch you know i have it last time i played it was hades but the last time that I got really excited about a Nintendo Switch game, uh, it was Luigi's Mansion 3. I think it was the last time I was very excited, and I got a Switch game day one, and I was just kind of hooked on it. I just haven't had that going on lately. So when it came to this Nintendo Direct, I was interested in terms of just you know watching it and see what they have for the first half of the year. But I definitely wasn't like one of those fans. I didn't go into it thinking to myself, what would what's my next Switch game going to be? Because of the fact that, you know, I haven't really used this I haven't really used my Switch in, in, in quite some time. But it was interesting watching this direct because I, I did feel that the direct was really, really strong. It it showed a lot of the strength that Nintendo was kind of leaning on right now, which a lot of it is um third party at the moment. And I think it's one of those things when I look at it, I go, there's there's not many Switch fans that I think regret buying a Nintendo Switch. You know, there's just so much out there in it. And they are doing a great job of having a very consistent lineup coming out. So they opened the game with Pyra and Mithra coming to Super Smash Bros. Ultimate in March. With this announcement, that means that, that, means that there are only two fighters left to round out the second DLC pass. And the big question is, will Nintendo create a third pass for this game? I mean, when you think about Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, I don't think it's reached 30 million copies just yet. It does look like the sales slowed down quite a bit from year one to year two. And when I think about a lot of these announcements, I'm sure that Nintendo is gathering data in terms of Every time we announce a character, how does that affect sales? How does that affect sales when we announce a character? How does that affect sales when we actually release um, a fighter? And I don't have the numbers in front of me in terms of exactly how many um, sales this game has. It's already been out for, I think, two years right now. But if I remember correctly, I think year one, they, they were able to sell around 10 to 11 million copies and then it really sold slowed down it was probably more than that i don't have the information right in front of me but if i'm a guessing man i sort of feel like this is the last dlc that they're gonna do and obviously nintendo can change their mind at any 
point in time. I think they sort of did allude to this being the the the, uh, the final pass that they were going to create, but I, I I think that they do look at it in terms of the ROI of having to pay all this licensing and all the work that goes into putting these characters into the game. I mean, obviously some of them are first parties, so it's a little bit different, but when you look at, you know, Minecraft Steve and Sephiroth, there's a lot of licensing fees that are involved in that. And, you know, Super Smash Brothers team does a lot. Like they do a really big job when it comes to putting these characters into their game. We see this a lot right now in our industry when it comes to these games adding other properties into their own. You know, just right before I started recording. Fall Guys made an announcement that they're adding Cuphead and Mugman costumes and things like that. But the amount of work that Nintendo puts into these collaborations is astronomical. The fact that, you know, just the art, the actual depiction of that character, their moveset, you know, making sure that, you know, their philosophy for that game itself actually fits into Super Smash Brothers. Um, and we saw all the work, especially that they did with Minecraft Steve. So I think that Nintendo is sort of looking at this from an ROI perspective of, you know, anytime they announce someone, how does it affect brand new sales? And I think that it doesn't really look like it's, it's um, you know, affecting it very, very much. Because even if their DLC sales are, are, are growing well... Uh, you know, if the base number of Super Smash Brothers Ultimate is not growing, then that sort of limits, obviously, the amount of DLC that you can sell to any given customer. I actually have to look it up. Super Smash Brothers Ultimate is at 22.85 million copies in two years. And that's definitely not a failure, but I think Nintendo would... I could see them expecting that number to be a lot higher for this type of game. You know, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate is without a doubt the most support that Nintendo has ever put into a game post-launch. And I think they did a lot of that with, with what we remember, the post-launch content that they did with Mario Kart 8. And then they added all that into Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Um, they started it with Super Smash Bros. for the Wii U. But the amount of time money and resources that they've been spending to put into post-launch content for this game this is it's obviously the largest that they've ever committed um to any piece of software that they've done but i think to to them to only be averaging uh about 11 million copies per year i wouldn't look at it as like a failure but i do look at it as from a business decision I don't think continue to create DLC is really the way to go. So I personally think that after they announce these two fighters, I could definitely see Nintendo saying, hey, we're going to keep supporting Ultimate in terms of balance patches and things like that. But I do think that that's going to be the end of these collaborations. Maybe they'll add like me fighter skins or stages and things like that, maybe. But I think that's it for the characters. I mean... How could you ask for anything more? I mean, this game has, what is that, over 80 fighters now? I mean, that's a huge roster. I don't think anyone's going to be disappointed they decide that this is it for them. Then they announced the Outer Wilds coming to Nintendo Switch. For anyone that hasn't tried this game, it's actually on Xbox Game Pass. If you have it, you can 
uh, download it and give it a try. I, I actually did. I, I saw the appeal of it. I, I saw how people might like it. It wasn't my cup of coffee. I, I, I didn't um, really play it for um, for very long before I put it down. Just just wasn't really super interested in it. Next was the announcement that Fall Guys is coming to Switch, which was pretty inevitable. The next day, uh, the developers of Fall Guys also announced it's coming for Xbox One and the Xbox Series X. This game looks to be coming out definitely this year, but closer to around the summer. And, uh, you know, there was that rumor that Fall Guys was coming to Game Pass. I still think that that's the ideal way for Fall Guys to roll out in the Xbox. I think that was part of their success when it came to PlayStation. So I think if they're able to do that with Xbox and add it to Game Pass, they can sort of almost spike their momentum, just not as much as they did originally, but just a little bit because you're able to, you know, uh, bring in so many people into the game and talking about it and, and, you know, sharing it on their Twitter and, you know, YouTube and social media and things like that. So I think it would make sense for them to be a Game Pass, even if it's just for a few months. After that, Samurai Warriors 5 was announced, um, but then after the show, we found out that it is also coming to PC, PS4, and Xbox One. Uh, next announcement was Famicom Detective Club, The Missing Air, and The Girl Who Stands Behind. This is a remake from a very, very old game. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later in the show. We got an enhanced version of Legend of Mana. A new look at Monster Hunter Rise. Monster Hunter is, an, is, is yet another franchise. There's so many franchises and games out there that I look at it and I go, I, I totally understand why <clears throat> this type of game and this franchise has such a an amazing, amazing fan base. But every time I've tried Monster Hunter, I just, you know, I, I've brought this up before that a game has to like click with me in order for me to like really invest in it. And Monster Hunter was just one of those games I never did. But it's also one that I understand. Like, man, I, I totally understand. And I get why so many people love this franchise. And this game is just going to be phenomenal for Capcom. I think it's definitely going to be one of their biggest successes. Not only just in franchise history for Monster Hunter. But also for Capcom as a company. I think it's coming at, at a perfect moment in uh, the Nintendo Switch's uh library and their run as a console it's coming out next month i think it's just the perfect time for this game to come out and without a doubt this game is going to do really 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 well for capcom and nintendo so i'm definitely very much looking forward to what those numbers are going to look like when it releases next month after that we got uh mario golf super rush um which was Mario Golf. I mean, I don't really know what else to 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 say about it. You know, they talked about having some single player content where you can create a me and kind of level them up, and a new mode that actually looked kind of kind of cool, looked pretty fun, where um, you know people can four players can play on the green at the same time, and you're kind of whacking your ball, and you have to run uh, over to it, and the goal is to 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 uh, get your ball in that hole before anyone else. So, uh, there were like power-ups and things like that. I mean, it looked, looked pretty fun. Um, so that was something that was the second first party game that they announced right after that. They talked about Capcom arcade stadium, which is out that same day. Uh, 
Then uh, Stubbs, the zombie rebel without a pulse, which is a game that, if I'm not mistaken, came out on the original Xbox. I definitely remember playing it coming out March 16th. You know, sometimes I look at these games and, you know, this type of game that, let's be honest, it's not really even a remake. It's almost like a just an HD re-release. And sometimes I look at these announcements and I say to myself, I don't really understand why uh, these types of games are greenlit because the, the game just looked rough, man. <laughs> when you look at this game compared to everything else that we were looking at during the um, during the show, I mean, for this game to come out in March, it, it just didn't look good. And I remember that game was actually pretty fun. But I feel like that's a hard game to sell, uh, especially coming out in March. I think it's a few days after Crash Bandicoot, Q, <laughs> Crash Bandicoot, after Apex Legends. You know, the same month, I think, as Monster Hunter Rise. It just looks like a game is going to get lost in the shuffle. Tales from the Borderlands is also coming out to Switch March 24th. They announced a game called DC Superhero Girls Team Power June 4th. And then they showed off a little bit more footage of No More Heroes 3, and they're finally coming out August 27th. And, you know, I, I was a big fan of No More Heroes 1 and 2, and I think it's just sort of my hype kind of died down for this game. And it's definitely something that if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know, it's something that I always bring up, which is um, how much I absolutely dislike when companies announce games too early. Because then this happens. I feel like the, the hype sort of dies down. And when they finally showed No More Heroes 3, I, I felt a little sense of, you know, I just felt a little bit underwhelmed. So I'm hoping that my help, my hype builds back up for this game before it comes out August 27th. Because this is a franchise that I absolutely really, really like. I remember it definitely being one of my favorite games for the Nintendo Wii. So um, we'll just have to sort of wait and see. But it's good to finally have a date of August 27th, I think it is coming out in a good time for 2021. Then there was this really weird trailer for a game called Knockout City on May 21st, which is an EA original game. So this game is being developed by Velen Studios, which is the same team behind Mario Kart Live Home Circuit, which I, I found very, very interesting. But this was a def definitely a, a really weird part of the Nintendo Direct because it started off with these generic characters talking to a camera. And it was very distracting because at first I was just sitting there and saying like, you know, you see these characters, it looks like a generic World of Warcraft ogre and, and this, you know, dirty talking princess and some guy that looked like a generic uh counter-strike character and this generic football player it was really weird to look at and then you find out there's a dodgeball game uh so th this game is coming out to multiple consoles i think it's also coming out to playstation and xbox and it was interesting to see this because i remember talking to a friend of mine about ea's lack of support for nintendo switch and i remember saying that i think that ea needs to find more games that would work on Nintendo Switch or work on completely original games that only exist on Nintendo Switch. So when they brought over a game like Sea of Solitude, that's a game that makes sense. Uh, a game like Apex Legends, 
in my opinion, doesn't make sense bringing to Nintendo Switch. When you look at uh, a game that comes out in a few months, it takes two. Why is that game not on Nintendo Switch? I, I, I don't get it. Like, I looked at the game, and we've seen what it looks like. There's literally no reason why that game cannot exist on Nintendo Switch. And I think Joseph Fars, who was the director of the game, had posted up an interview where he talked about the Nintendo Switch, and he didn't have the nicest things to say. But this wouldn't be a decision from Joseph Fars. This would be a decision from EA when they decide to publish the game, if they decide to publish it on multiple consoles. But when you look at It Takes Two, that's a game that, I mean, should be built for the Nintendo Switch. You're talking about a co-op game. I mean, it's just it's just really weird that something like that wouldn't exist on Nintendo Switch. And when I look at something like Knockout City, I look at it as like, okay, this is a game that definitely should be on Nintendo Switch. And I hope that EA continues trying to find those types of games and those successes because I don't think it's something like Apex Legends, for example. But what was really weird about watching this game is that this was a game that I'm sure a lot of people felt the same way that I felt. There was a lot of confusion at the beginning of the trailer. Then you finally saw the game and you say to yourself, okay, it's a 3v3 dodgeball game. Okay, why the hell should I care about this? It's simple. The reason you don't care is because Velen Studios decided or EA decided someone made this decision to create this game around generic characters which makes no sense you know EA has this roster of a bunch of licenses and characters that they can pull from in order to put to this game that would have made this game a thousand percent more interesting for a bunch of people looking at that trailer like yeah a 3v3 dodgeball game yeah sounds kind of whack on the surface but let's say if commander shepherd was on there or you know uh mirage from apex legends or you you bring in a, a a generic sim or you know i was thinking like go back into the army the the the, the ea library go go get tyson and elliot from army of two and you know you have all these characters and, and these intellectual properties that you put so much money into as ea and I just don't understand why you wouldn't use those characters and maybe have a mix of original characters to put into this game because it would have made it a thousand percent more interesting. It wouldn't be a generic volleyball game anymore. It would be, you know, like, oh, that's pretty cool. I could play as Commander Shepard. You know, you have Apex Legends people from there, whatever. It was just so weird to see because it seems like a decision that should have been there from the very beginning. It it, it really reminded me of when Iwata originally pitched super smash Bros. to nintendo and the first thing he said was we need to use a nintendo character because he understood how much work goes into not just on just not only just the, the art and, and the concept and the creation of original of original characters but also the amount of time money and resources you have to spend in order to sell those characters uh to the generic public and get them involved and excited about a video game. You know, you can save so much of that time and money by putting characters that they already love and are already genuinely excited to see, um, not only just in the games that they're in. So just a really super weird decision that I wanted to bring up. Neon White was announced as a new anime sugar from the maker of Donut County. I thought this, this game looked really cool until I saw the gameplay. Once I saw the gameplay... 
didn't really interest me at all. Uh, then they announced Metopia coming May 21st, 50 bucks. I mean, I, I don't know what to say about this. You know, I'm going to talk about this later in the show in terms of Nintendo obviously reaching into their back catalog. This was the game that originally came out for Nintendo 3DS. They didn't change much. Let's be honest. Nintendo really didn't do much to bring this game to Nintendo Switch. And actually, if you look at the original 3DS announcement trailer and you look at the Switch trailer, they're almost identical. They even used the same designs for the four Miis that they showed. It was like the, the same clothing. The pacing of the trailer was almost very, very similar. It's, you know, they didn't even bother adding multiplayer. A lot of people were surprised to see that the game was 50 bucks. You know, they were asking themselves, why isn't this just sort of a free addition to the system? This is Nintendo. I mean, why give something away for free when you can make some money? Of course, they're not going to give this away for free. Mario items coming to Animal Crossing New Horizons. A new tactical RPG was announced from Square Enix called Project Triangle Strategy, releasing in 2022. A demo was released that same day. Star Wars Hunters was announced, which is a competitive arena combat game. Now, this is a cell phone game that's also coming to Nintendo Switch, uh, but it's free to play. Who knows? Maybe it might be fun, but we didn't really see um, any gameplay for it. World's End Club was announced from the makers of Dragon Rompa coming May 28th. They announced a physical version of Hades. A reminder that Bravely Default 2 comes out this week. Uh, Ghosts and Goblins comes out this week. Saga Frontier Remastered. Uh, and then it showed Apex Legends coming March 9th. This game reminds me of when Blizzard put Overwatch on Nintendo Switch. There's no way that decision was worth the money. There's no way, you know, especially adding crossplay to Nintendo Switch. There's no way the maintenance of that server and those updates, they're making up the difference when it comes to... Um, this game's sales on Nintendo Switch. It, it, no one's going to convince me otherwise unless Blizzard puts out those numbers. And I think that the same thing's going to happen with EA and Apex Legends. I think that companies do need to realize what games make sense for the type of platform that I'm putting this on. And this game looked rough. And it really reminded me of the first time that I saw Overwatch on Nintendo Switch, which was... You know, this is a game that I played on Xbox. I still play to this day, but I play on PC. I've been on PC for the last two years, I think. And, you know, when I look at the frame rate of the Nintendo Switch version, I say to myself, this is useless. When it comes to a multiplayer experience, this is useless. So when I look at Apex Legends, I say to myself, no, this this isn't the way to play this game. I, I You know, you could, you could just see the engine just struggling when you saw what the game looked like because if i'm not mistaken it's the first time they actually show gameplay of the switch version and it was it, i looked at it as like an abomination like i felt bad for those engineers and those employees that had to bring this game onto nintendo switch it's kind of one of those things where you, you you have to come to the realization that this is not the right platform for us to put this game on right there's a reason why call of duty doesn't exist on nintendo switch could they technically make it work probably should they no you know, like with Apex Legends, you have PC, you have PlayStation, you have Xbox, you have your crossplay. Focus on that. 
bring up cross progression, which I know is something a lot of people are asking for, but the Switch version just doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Ninja Gaiden Master Collection was announced coming October 6th, but it's also coming to PC, Xbox One, and PS4. Howard Wars Age of Climate DLC is on the way. And then AG Ionuma showed up on screen. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. The moment I saw this man, I said to myself, this guy's standing here to tell us there's no, there's no Breath of the Wild 2 news. <laughs> like, there was a part of me that felt that that's what was going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. He apologized. And he said, we don't have no news to, sit, to share. He said something that I thought was very interesting. He said, quote, we should be able to bring you more information this year. So there wasn't really a definitive stance that they were taking confirmation that hey we're definitely going to be able to talk to to you about this game this year which i thought was a little telling in terms of are we going to see this game holiday 2021 and right now it seems like it's very very much up in the air Uh, he then announced skyward sword hd coming july 16th and uh this was definitely one of the Zelda games that I personally missed. A lot of people told me that it just really wasn't very good. Uh, this whole thing of using the Wii as a sword, it was very annoying. So I never even bothered to play it. And I'm definitely not going to play it now. <laughs> you know, I, I brought this up when Nintendo announced Super Mario 3D All-Stars. And I said, look, if you're okay with paying $60 for this, that's fine. I am not giving Nintendo $59.99 for what they deem is an HD version of Skyward Sword. Uh, it, it's just not. It's just not for me. I I truly believe that even if I want to play this game, if I disagree with the method in which a company tries to deliver it to me, I refuse to fuel that practice i guess for lack of a better term because every time nintendo does this which is takes a really old game um does the absolute bare minimum the absolute bare minimum to deliver this game to a new system and they charge you full price 59.99 every time they're able to get away with that every time they look at the return on their investment and it's 400% or something like that. The only thing it does is that continues, they're going to continue doing it. And I, I, I don't blame Nintendo for doing it. I, I definitely don't blame you for taking a game that was released 10 years ago, which is definitely a Zelda game that I, I know for a fact, a lot of gamers missed. Uh, do the absolute bare minimum to bring it to Nintendo Switch. And the game is going to sell like hotcakes, especially coming out in July. You know, it's coming out in a good month. A lot of people are probably going to feel like, man, I I just want something Nintendo on my system. They're going to buy it. Super Mario 3D All-Star sold over 8 million copies in five months. And let me tell you, it had nothing to do with Nintendo announcing that it was going to go away in March 31st. That that That's not what fueled that. What fueled it was people wanting to replay these games. And it's going to happen again this time. I'm just not one of those people. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give Nintendo $59.99 for this game. Personally, I really did want to play it. But what, what kind of does annoy me a little bit is, once again, it, it, it seemed that they, they, they didn't even look into the game 
to address a lot of the issues that people had, like the annoyances, what, you know, every enemy sort of being a puzzle and, and, and the puzzle being presented in the same way, which is how you angle your sword and having to defeat every single, not, I'm not going to say every single enemy, but uh, most enemies that you encounter have to be defeated in a very specific way. And it's very different from Breath of the Wild, right? When you find an enemy, there are very different ways to defeat. You can, you know, uh, normally slash with your sword, change to a different weapon, uh, use the bombs, magnesis, hit them with an op. There's a lot of things that you could do. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about there's an enemy presented and you have to go through the same exact steps to, to defeat that enemy every single time. And that was one of the biggest complaints about the game where they tried to sell this idea of every defeating every enemy being a puzzle, but no one wants to do the same exact puzzle a hundred, 200 times throughout the course of a video game. So the fact that they didn't think about that philosophy and use this opportunity to change that up a little bit and maybe even say to themselves like, look, Skyward Sword, the big thing, we built this game around the use of the Wii Remote and motion controls, right? That was the only way to play the game. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think you could play with button controls in the original game. Now they're forced to create button controls. Let's be honest, okay? Nintendo didn't add button controls to this game because they wanted to. They were forced to do it because of the Nintendo Switch Lite and handheld mode. Right, it's a it's a philosophy they built for this own system. So they were forced to add button controls to it. It's not because they wanted to do it. So why not take this game, and and you know actually update it for the year twenty twenty one, and say to yourself, you know what? When we created this game, we thought this was a good idea. We built it around the use of motion motion controls. The Nintendo Switch is now about motion controls. Like, yes, Mario Golf, you can swing it like a golf club. How many gamers are actually going to play the game that way? I have to guess not many. They're going to try it, and then they're going to put it down, right? That's where we are in 2021. Nintendo Wii had its time. Motion controls had its time. We went through the whole Kinect. We're not there anymore. So at the end of the day, for Nintendo not to even do that as a minimum to rethink and reshape this game and almost give Skyward Sword the second chance and say to himself, there were so many issues with this game. Why not, if we're going to re-release it, why not address these issues? You know why? Because it would cost money, it would cost time, it would cost resources. So I I, I, I always bring this up. If I own a restaurant and it, and, and it costs me a dollar and I can sell the uh, burger for $20 and I've been doing it for, for 30 years, and someone comes up to me and they say, hey, Joel, there's the certain ingredients that we can buy. It's going to bring up the cost of the burger to $5, but it's going to be a way better end product. I'm going to tell that employee no, because I'm still paying a dollar for a burger. I'm selling it for $20, $10, and I've been selling consistently. There's a line out the door for 30 years. And that's really Nintendo's philosophy. And, and I don't blame them because it's the way that they run their business. So why would they make a better burger when it comes to Skyward Sword HD when I know you guys will pay $60 for the same burger I sold you 10 years ago? They're not going to do it, right? It's just it's just what they do. And, you know, I did an episode of Koji called the Nintendo Tax. And this is what I call it. I call it the Nintendo Tax because the other issue is that these games never go on sale. 
right? You've never heard. I mean, what was the last time Nintendo had a sale, right? The only thing that they do is they do their uh, Nintendo Selects. They did it for GameCube. They did it for DS. We don't have a Switch Selects. So internally in Nintendo, they have a philosophy. They had this philosophy that they call Evergreen. And an Evergreen title basically means it's a, it's a game that never stops selling, right? When, when uh, a person goes, whether it's a parent, um, buying a system for their child. Nintendo has historically had so, the highest attach rate in our industry in terms of buying software at the same moment that you buy hardware. And an evergreen title is usually those titles that they buy first and they attach to the system. And that's why Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is at over 33 million pieces sold. And I, and I actually tweeted about this. during this, Before this direct, people were asking for Mario Kart 9. I said to myself, are you guys insane? Like Nintendo would be insane to create a Mario Kart 9 right now when you guys, not you guys, but people who are buying Switches have not stopped buying Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. You know, last month it was in sixth place for the best selling games of the month. Right? Like you're talking about a game that's about to be four years old, if I'm not mistaken. And they were the sixth best selling title for the month of January. And that uh, chart did not ad did not calculate digital sales because Nintendo doesn't share those. So it was probably even higher than sixth place. So if I'm Nintendo right now for the Nintendo switch, Mario Kart A is the best selling game of all time. Uh, Animal Crossing will definitely surpass that very, very soon. Maybe by the time they uh, talk about their earnings, when they release it at the end of March, uh, early April, Animal Crossing will finally defeat Mario Kart. I mean, obviously an amazing uh, first year for Animal Crossing. But that still doesn't change the fact that not only is Mario Kart 8 Deluxe four years old than the Nintendo Switch, but it's much older when you think about the fact that the content is pretty much almost identical when it came on the Nintendo Wii U. So once again, the consumer, the Nintendo consumers have proven Nintendo right, which is why would I lower the price of, of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe from $59.99 down to $40? Why? To just be nice? Like business isn't about being nice. Business is about making money. One two switch, which launched which launched with a Nintendo Switch, is still $49.99. I have no idea why. <laughs> that game should be free with every purchase of the Nintendo Switch. Who the hell is buying one two switch four years after the Nintendo Switch drop? Especially at $49.99. Doesn't make any sense. I don't know why Nintendo hasn't made a Switch Selects or something like that. Maybe this year they'll do that. I think it would make sense to put games like 1-2-Switch on there, to put games like Breath of the Wild 1 in order to lead into Breath of the Wild 2. Maybe people there's people out there who haven't played Breath of the Wild 1, and there are definitely a lot of people who haven't played Breath of the Wild. They've only sold 21 million pieces, so there are a lot of Nintendo Switch owners that never bought Breath of the Wild. Lower that game down to 30 40 bucks before Breath of the Wild 2, and lower some of these other games that stop selling. That's the only reason why we're getting Breath of the Wild 2. Let's be honest. If Breath of the Wild 1 uh, was, at, you know, where Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is at right now, 33 million, we probably wouldn't even get a Breath of the Wild 2 because that's just how Nintendo chooses to run their business. You can't get angry at them. Then the end of the direct came and we got Splatoon 3. I'll, I'll be honest with you. This was a complete surprise. I, I wouldn't have expected them to do this, but in hindsight, it actually makes a lot of sense. Splatoon 2 came out July 2017 and has sold 11 million copies, which averages to about two, uh, excuse me, 3.2 million 
per year. To a lot of companies, it's a success. For Nintendo, this is a failure. And I don't think it's it's a gigantic failure, but I think internally as a company, they look at it as like, this is a game that's multiplayer focused and it is, why have we only sold 11 million copies? But honestly, it's Nintendo's fault. This game has only sold 11 million copies. You know, Splatfest and updates ended after only two years. You know, um, right now, the way you grow a multiplayer game is consistent and constant engagements, constant updates. It's esports, it's running tournaments. Nintendo's not doing any of that. And we've seen what they did with Smash. Not only are they not doing it, it seems sometimes they go out of their way to not to prevent other people from doing it, right? So when you look at the sales for Splatoon and you look at the sales even for Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, you can't deny that not having a very, very strong esports multiplayer presence, it, it, you know, one plus one equals two, right? It, it, that has to be affecting a lot of these sales. But why are they creating a sequel to this game? That was the first thing I thought when I saw this game. When I first saw it, I said to myself, oh, cool, they're adding another piece of, of single-player DLC to uh, Splatoon, which, which it, they did with, shoot, I can't remember what the name, Octo something was the name of the single-player DLC that they did for Splatoon 2. When I saw that Splatoon 3 logo, I was baffled. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And it, it, it's for a, a few reasons. Number one, understand how rare this is from Nintendo. It's extremely rare for us to get a direct sequel for a Nintendo game. And now we're getting two direct sequels in the same uh, system cycle. This is rare. So we're getting a sequel to Breath of the Wild and we're getting a sequel to Splatoon 2. That's rare. And I actually started thinking about it. I did research. I actually had to ask a couple people because I wanted to make sure I wasn't wrong. And if you're listening to the podcast, this podcast, and I was wrong, please let me know. I think the last time there was a direct sequel on the Nintendo console, I think was Donkey Kong Country. That was the last I can remember. I asked some friends of mine to see if I was wrong and they couldn't come up with another one. I think Donkey Kong Country 2 to 3 was the last direct sequel that I can remember. We could talk about Super Mario Brothers 1, 2, 3, I guess, for the NES. But I can't remember many times that Nintendo did this. And the reason why Nintendo rarely does this is because usually their software never stops selling. It, it, it becomes evergreen almost for the entire uh, system cycle. That's why you only get one Smash per system. You only get one Mario Kart per system. They don't do what Call of Duty does. They don't do what some of these other companies do. Assassin's Creed, for example. Because they understand that the moment you introduce a sequel to a game, you cannibalize the sales of that original. And Nintendo, for quite some time, they've been able to maintain consistent sales of a game without having to add updates to that game. That's why Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is uh, a very good use study for Nintendo internally because they released a game and, and that's it. They, they've done nothing to support Mario Kart 8. It's not like they, they, they've done tournaments. They haven't done any DLC updates for that game, but it consistently and constantly sells. And I think a lot of it is due to it having the highest attach rate. The moment, especially a parent buys that game, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe is usually probably one of the first games that they're uh, recommended um, to buy alongside it. 
And when I saw Splatoon 3, the first thing I asked myself is, why do a sequel? This could have been a game that they could have just updated Splatoon 2, right? You could have, you could have just added new weapons and new maps and new locations and even changed the plaza and things like that. All of that could have been a free multiplayer update. I mean, if you look at Splatoon 3, like, yeah, the visuals that we saw from that trailer were a little bit sharper, but it didn't look some, like something they couldn't have just accomplished with Splatoon 2. And then maybe add some single-player DLC that you had to pay for, similar to that Octo uh, DLC. Charge 40 bucks for that, right? But the multiplayer, you add it, and that way you're able to increase the sales of Splatoon 2, maybe bring people back into the game. But then it got me thinking... Once again, why create a sequel to this game? It, it doesn't really make sense to create a sequel to this game. Breath of the Wild 2 sort of makes sense, right? It's single player. You're, it's, a new, it's a new story. I understand that. But Splatoon 3, you could just have easily just updated the Splatoon 2 multiplayer. But then you have to ask yourself, Splatfest and updates ended after only two years, which means in July 2019, all that was shut down. That signaled that the entire Splatoon team moved over to, to develop Splatoon 3. And at some point, they fragmented that team and have one team working on Splatoon 3, the other one on uh, updates for Splatoon 2. Now, I, I personally, this is my theory. I feel like this direct is the clearest clue that we've gotten that Nintendo is preparing to release a new Nintendo Switch. You know, Direct had a lot of what I consider first half filler. You know, you had Famicom Detective Club. This is a, a Western remake of a 1988 Famicom game, right? Then you had Miitopia, a 3DS remake from 2017. Skyward Sword HD Wii remake. Pretty much everything we heard first party wise from Nintendo was all grabbing stuff from the past. This isn't new from Nintendo. Anytime they're holding software at a gate or even hardware at a gate, they go back in time to try to find um, these things that save money, time, and resources. The development cycle can be absolutely shortened or even cut in half because you're not having to create original art and story and beats. You're just taking something that already is established and bringing it over to a new system. Now, when you look at Miitopia as an example, once again, I said that they're not even adding multiplayer to that game. When you look at the trailer, you realize like multiplayer sort of does. It looks like it, it would make sense for this game. It looks like you can you're able to fit it. But then what does that do? It adds to the development cycle. They did this before in the past with the release of the uh, NES Classic, for example, it was a hardware stop gap to get from Wii U to Nintendo Switch. This isn't anything new from Nintendo. So when you realize and you think about all these announcements, Splatoon 3 being a sequel that comes out in 2022, all of these games that are being remade in order to uh, keep people interested and show people like, hey, we're still adding to the Nintendo library. And yeah, you know, I guess Mario Golf will be an original game, but once again, it's not this original, original idea. And when you look at that game, you realize like, yeah, the development cycle, I mean, for that game shouldn't have been uh, too taxing. Then you look at the fact that Metro Prime 4 was announced in June 2017. Nintendo announced development was restarted in January 2019. It's now February 2021. We haven't heard anything. So it's been two years. June 2017, Miyamoto confirmed Pikmin 4 was in development. 
It's now been four years. Bayonetta 3 was announced December 2017, over three years since we've seen or heard anything. We haven't even seen an image, not even concept art from this game. Breath of the Wild 2 was first announced June 2019 and uh, was that was like a CG trailer. Uh, it's been over a year. We haven't heard anything. And June 2021 will make two years. That's going to be E3. And according to Aonuma, he said we should be talking about this sometime this year. But he hasn't guaranteed that we hear about it, which means that we could go two years without hearing absolutely any information outside of a Breath of the Wild sequel is in uh, um, is in the work. We're all calling it Breath of the Wild 2, but that's probably not, that might not be what it's going to be called, right? And now we have Splatoon 3 coming in 2022. So my theory looking at this is it, it seems like Nintendo's holding back software for a new Nintendo Switch to hit the market either holiday 2021 or early 2022, which is probably why they don't know, why why Aonuma said we should. He's not 100% sure. Maybe they, they're not sure if they're able to get this ready by holiday 2021. So it obviously, it, it seems like Nintendo wants to announce a new Nintendo Switch and have software ready uh, for that announcement. If there's something that Nintendo uh, has done historically is when they announce new hardware or, or anything new, they always make sure that they have software ready to back up that announcement, right? When they when they talked about Nintendo Switch, they had one two switch ready to show you what it was capable of. When they when when you talk about Nintendo Wii, you had the Wii Sports, right? They always have something to show. For a Nintendo Wii U, it was Nintendo Land. They always have some sort of software. So not only can they tell you what this new piece of hardware hardware is capable of, they can absolutely show you. And it sort of seems that when you think of Breath of the Wild, when you think of Bayonetta, when you think of Metro Prime. You look at these three games and you realize that if there was a new Nintendo Switch, something that was capable of, uh, you know, 4K and and, and um, way more bells and whistles, you know, more better lighting techniques. If there's anything you would want is you would want to hold these three games until you have a new shiny piece of hardware uh, to showcase what this new Nintendo Switch is capable of. And I'll piggyback off the theory that I've, brought in the show multiple times which is i don't think that there's going to be a switch pro um i think that they're going with what they did with new nintendo 3ds which is a new nintendo switch is capable of more but at the same time what the, the mistake that they learned from new nintendo 3ds is that they're not going to fragment their uh hardware base uh when it came to new nintendo 3ds there were only i think about five to seven pieces of software that you needed a new Nintendo 3DS from. And I think the biggest ones were Minecraft and Xenoblade. I think those were the two games, those were the two biggest ones that you needed in 3DS, and there really wasn't nothing else. It just it kind of didn't make sense. So I think their goal is to do what, what Xbox is doing, similar to with Series S and Series X, which is if you have the new Nintendo Switch, you know, Breath of the Wild runs at, a smooth 60 frames per second. Maybe, who knows? Maybe they've, they're achieving 60 frames on the handheld. I don't know. Uh, who knows what they're doing, right? It's a, it's a better screen. It's a much shinier screen. I talked about that. I really hope that they put 5G into the, the, the new Nintendo Switch. I really think that's the way to go. 
I think a Switch Pro just doesn't make any sense for, for Nintendo. I don't think it makes sense to have three different pieces of hardware. The Nintendo Switch is still selling like hotcakes. What makes more sense for them is to have a new Nintendo Switch. And at some point in the year 2022, when you go into the store to buy a Nintendo Switch, you have either your choice of, uh, um, what do you call it, uh, Nintendo Switch Lite, or you have new, new Nintendo, excuse me, the new Nintendo Switch. That's it. They both play all Switch games, but if you have new Nintendo Switch and you have the dock, you can have 4K on your TV and in handheld mode, it just looks sharper, runs better, all these different things that they can do. I personally think that this is where they're going. And uh, when you look at this Nintendo Direct, I feel like it's the clearest picture of what Nintendo is trying to do. Because, I mean, I mean, think about it. Why would you announce Splatoon 3 when you have these other four, if we count Pikmin 4, these, these, these four major, major franchise additions and you're just not even talking about them. You're not showing it. That's just not normal. There must be something happening. And I personally think that this is um, this is the way. I do think this is the direction that Nintendo is heading towards. This week's hot releases, tomorrow, February 23rd, we have Persona 5 Strikers, PC, PS4, Switch, Taxi Chaos, which looks like a spiritual successor, successor to Crazy Taxi. PS4, Xbox One, and Switch. February 25th, we have Republic coming to Switch. Ghost and Goblins Resurrection coming to Switch. And, uh, Jesus, this is a big game. This is a big week for Switch. Let's notice. February 26th, we have Bravely Default 2, also um, only for Switch. Time to wrap it up. The stories we didn't have time to get to. Microsoft announced Xbox FPS Boost, which enhances Xbox One games with no update or digital development work needed. The first games... Uh, um, to support it, Far Cry 4, New Super, New Super Lucky's Tales, Sniper Elite 4, UFC 4, and Watch Dogs 2. These types of enhancements uh, include like going all the way up to 120 frames per second, the game running faster, the game running a lot smoother. Um, and apparently the developers don't have to do anything. It's just uh, it's something that Xbox does on their end. Uh, I think this is good. I, I hope that this encourages devs to bring even more third-party Xbox One games over to Xbox Game Pass. One strength that I talked about Game Pass in the past is comparing it to Netflix, um, which is Netflix puts up, or or excuse me, uh, creators of shows use Netflix to put up old seasons of a show in order to increase awareness and raise chances that uh, a person that is subscribed to Netflix will then start watching the newest season of a show. And, I, and I, I, I've talked about this in the past. This is a strength of Game Pass where, um, you know, if I think about, let's think about EA. This is, a, this is a good example, BioWare. When Mass Effect 4 or when the next Mass Effect comes out, what you do is you add Mass Effect Legendary Edition to the Game Pass. Now what you're doing is you're bringing people into the Mass Effect franchise at a lower cost of entry, getting them interested in it, and they love it. Oh, wait, look at that. In a few months, Mass Effect 4 comes out. So that's a perfect example. I like this FPS boost because it it gives uh, developers yet another incentive to modernize their games a bit more and uh, get more people to interact and try it. 
and and uh, get them into that franchise, that IP, or into that uh, company's library. Great stuff. Uh, Microsoft is starting a new program that will allow developers to send in Xbox and PC games to be evaluated by a team of accessibility experts. Now, while all three companies have gotten better when it comes to accessibility, it seems like Microsoft is leading the charge. We had the Xbox adaptive controller. Now we're hearing about this. Um, while this is all great and it was great to read, um, you know, we, we need industry standards, right? We, we just need industry standards. Like if, if you think of the United States of America, you think about the fact that every single corner in New York City has a ramp, uh, you know, every business must have a way for someone in a, a wheelchair or someone that has a handicap to be able to enter into that business. Think about it like this. If I gave bodegas and every business a choice, like, hey, you could build a ramp if you want. Um, how many businesses will say, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and do that? No, no businesses, no businesses want to do that. Why? Because it takes time, money, and resources to build that wheelchair ramp. The thing that changed, right, was the Disabilities Act. That act that, that forced these businesses to treat uh, Americans with disabilities as equal to Americans that did not have them. Until our industry has these standards that are put by Xbox, Microsoft, uh, Nintendo, Steam, Epic Game Store, until these marketplaces say to themselves, you cannot publish a game on my system unless, uh, at the very least, you have control over subtitle text and sizes, you have a colorblind mode. If you do not have these, you cannot release your game. Until we have those industry standards, I don't think that accessibility is going to go very, very far. Over 300 million people worldwide suffer from colorblindness. Excuse me, colorblindness. And think about the last time that you saw a game ship with a colorblind mode. It's really rare, and the reason why is because it takes money, it takes resources. Uh, 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 unless those publishers are forced to do this, is not going to change. And I think the big three need to take a bigger step when it comes to this. Developers at Google's now closed game studios said they were shocked to hear. They were being shut down because just a week before, Phil Harrison praised the staff for how great progress they were making. How is Phil Harrison still getting hired to launch products? <laughs> like When you think of Phil Harrison, he launched the PlayStation 3, which was a failure. He launched the Xbox One, I believe, which was a failure. And now he launched Google Stadia, which is a failure. Who is still hiring Phil Harrison? Stop hiring this man. This guy is awful. Uh, Blizzard, BlizzCon Online took place over the weekend and along with some Overwatch 2, World of Warcraft, and Diablo 4 updates, Blizzard also confirmed the Diablo 2 remake called Diablo 2 Resurrected. So a few things. Number one, PC and consoles coming in 2021. It's launching with cross-progression. I've said this before in the past. More and more companies need to do this. For the love of God, you have to have cross-play and cross-progression at launch. Now think about it like this. I just talked about... How many games ship with a lack of accessibility options? And now we're seeing a lot of these games shipping with cross-progression and even cross-play at launch. Why are we seeing this? Because they're getting a return on their investment. They realize they've invested resources uh, to make sure my developers get cross-play and cross-progression. I've proven in the past analytically through data, it's increased sales and it's increased engagement with my title. That same ROI does not exist with accessibility. That's the reason why we need standards, right? 
That's our show. Shout out to Fortnite. Fortnite gets a shout out of the week. Last week, a rift appeared in game showing reused classic Street Fighter um, stage along with its iconic theme. And now Chun-Li and Ryu are coming to Fortnite. I kind of love how Fortnite took the Smash formula, cranked up to 11. Now you have a world where Ryu can shoot a Gatling gun at the Flash, and team up against Kratos and John Wick and all this absolutely crazy stuff. Uh, I think it really shows Epic Games, they're going towards their goal of creating uh, uh, a really, really strong metaverse. That's our show. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Kim Koji for future updates. Once again, I'm Joel, and I will see you all next week.